Hello, you're listening to Social Science Talk Science Fiction, a podcast where social scientists, philosophers, researchers and theorists discuss the themes and works of science fiction. This podcast is recorded in the basement of the International Politics Building at Aberystwyth University and is available free under a Creative Commons license. We hope you enjoy the programme. The Dispossessed by Ursula K. Le Guin is a novel that was published in 1974 and immediately began to receive recognition beyond the science fiction community. As well as exploring societies unfamiliar to us through the character of Chevet, Le Guin used the novel to raise questions concerning anarchism, capitalism, revolution and language with the same provocative determination with which she had considered gender in her novel The Left Hand of Darkness. The thoroughness of her attitude towards questions of social organisation led Gerald Jonas in the New York Times to argue that Le Guin's book, written in her solid, no-nonsense prose, is so persuasive that it ought to put a stop to the writing of prescriptive utopias for at least ten years. I'm your host, Alex Hoseason, thanking you for all the fear. Uh, I'm Matthew Campbell. I'm a part-time consultant for Whaling Utopia. I'm Kat Helen. I just handed in my thesis, and I have two hobbies to credit for finishing the thesis, which is karate on the one hand and crochet on the other hand. Hi, I'm Jess Shahan, yet another PhD student, and I will not egoize. I think, I mean, a good place to start is kind of maybe some more kind of plot-oriented points around the novel. Um, I mean, Kat, how do you see um, kind of how the novel works? I mean, we see it all through the character of Shavak, right? Yeah, exactly. So... I mean, on the one hand, I think the focus on Shevek obviously follows traditional storytelling conventions. So you have one main character, and you experience everything in a way through his eyes. Um, but I think there's, ob- there's obviously more to this. So this particular corner of the universe with those two planets, Anaris and Urus, um, are experienced through Shevek's Shevek, eyes. Um, so he goes from his home planet, Anaris, to Urus. And when he lands on Urus, we get to experience this world from his perspective. And one thing to note is that in many ways, Urus is probably closer to our modern Western society than his home planet, Anaris. But because we are in Shevik's shoes, we get to see the world through his eyes. He's the one who's unfamiliar. He's the outsider on Urus. Um, and I think it helps us, the reader, along the way of a process of defamiliarization, where what is considered normal suddenly appears strange and allow us to rethink the very underlying logic um, of our own world and the parts we take for granted. But then, on his home planet, Anaris, we, we, we get to have a similar experience. We experience Anaris and its Odonian society through Shevek's eyes. And Shevek is an Odonian, and we get to feel the love he has for his people and the drive he has to help his society and to support um, his society. But we also get to see where the friction is between him as an individual and his society. Because even on Anaris, Shevik is the outsider. He's slightly strange, he's a bit different, and he doesn't quite fit in. Um, we do not get told where this difference comes from, but the assumption seems to be that he's different from birth. And so I think it's, it's quite cool in, in the sense that we see Urus, which is more familiar to us through his eyes, to defamiliar ourselves. But then Anaris, which is probably more different because it's an anarchic society, different from how we live, we get to kind of develop more of an emotional bond with those principles, with the society and his people. Okay, right. I mean, I mean, just do you think that Shevik is, is, is unique as a, as a person in the novel, or do you think it's just a function of the fact that we kind of follow it through his eyes? I mean, are these two separate things, or are they...? I think it's 
realistically, when you look at Shavek as a reader, he's an outsider. You can relate to him as an outsider. And I think that Le Guin uses that both to draw the reader in, but also to make, uh, as you said, the both these foreign worlds to us seem more familiar. And in doing so, it makes for, I think, a more cohesive, um, engaging narrative. It makes it so when you see his trials and struggles, you think back to your own struggles and hurdles. And it makes it so the reader themselves compares their own life to not just the world that seems familiar, but the world that seems foreign. Yeah, it seems to me that, I mean, it seemed quite arbitrary as a character in some respects, that you, you kind of have this character that you see the, the, the book follows. I mean, it's not, not necessarily about him in particular, but it, it certainly follows his narrative and, and the way he sees things. But he's a genius, right? This is kind of something that's very much given in advance that marks him out as different. And, and, and I, I find one of the strange things about the book, actually, the fact that the fact that he is a genius and the fact that there's a novel written about him in some sense marks out the fact that, I mean, surely before there must have been other geniuses um, or other clever people. And, and the only one it seems to acknowledge is, is Odo, the founder of the society. Was it Odo? Yeah, the, the founder of the society. Um, and, and I think it's that attribute that he has that, that leads him into some of the clashes that he has with his society or the way he kind of grates against it a little bit. Matthew, do you, do you think that he's he's clashing with his society as a kind of function of, of who he is or, or a function of what the book needs to be for it to be interesting? I don't think the answer to that question is necessarily the same on both planets. So when Shevet goes to Uras and its capitalistic society, you have to think that any anarchist from the moon, as they call it, would have the same culture clash problems. They wouldn't speak the language, they wouldn't be immune to the same diseases, they wouldn't grasp currency in the same way. However, on his home planet, I think that's definitely true. I think Shevek's genius and his need to work on physics that only he can understand sets him apart. And importantly, it sets him apart in a way that his society looked down upon. The Anaresi view egoizing the idea of I as this problem. And when Shevek is the genius physicist, he has to work alone simply because no one else in known human civilization understands what it is he's trying to achieve. But I don't think that's necessarily true of him as the character when he goes to Uras. Although it's notable that because half the novel seems to take place on each planet, that sometimes who he is sets him apart, and sometimes his societal upbringing sets him apart. I think there's actually an interesting parallel happening in that if you view Shevek from the point of view of other characters is that both societies view him in the same way, which is as potentially useful but generally dangerous. So whether you view it as a genuine manifestation of Adonian society or not, a lot of people on Naris view Shevek as a, this dangerous thinker who goes against societal ideals. Whereas on Uras, he's this dangerous thinker because the stuff he's working on could revolutionise space travel and therefore warfare. Um, so I actually don't think that the two societies necessarily view him that differently, although obviously he's a separate curio on Uras. Though it should be noted that the closer people get to him, the less dangerous they think he is. And you can see this with his family, but also with the physicist's colleagues and those that he does grow close to. Um, also those who support his cause or support him and try to help him. 
they don't see himself just dangerous but powerful or influential and that may not be the same thing in everyone's eyes mm, I, have, I have two questions actually or two slight quarrels with the novel uh, in that regard because so Shev, we pointed out Shevik is quite special he's a genius as Alex said but we never get a proper explanation why he does not quite fit into his own society so for example there's nothing in his upbringing that would suggest why he doesn't quite fit in. So he went through the normal kind of schooling you would go through on an hours, which is um, well, kind of daycare center type of school, where you're not brought up by your parents, but you're brought up in a community. And there's no, no point where it's suggested why he is so different. There are several stories we, we are told um, where he really comes up against his society already as a child, and where he's told off for thinking differently and for so-called egoizing, so for not doing what's best for the group, but for doing something that is different and more individual. So I'm not quite sure why he is actually, why he's special. There's nothing that suggests that in his own history. And the other thing, so he, he's a genius and he's the one who can come up with a theory of physics that has never been attempted before and that is so different that most people don't even understand. But then again, my slight worry here is that we have a single individual being singled out as the special one, as the one who, well, I think in some sense is going out in the world to save his own society, to come back and then kind of reinvigorate his society and, well, bring it forward. So he works, he works in, in I mean, novel later, he works in a kind of syndicate in a small community of people. But it's, in a way, it's a lot about him, and it's all about him being the special one. And I'm, I'm, not, I'm not quite happy with that, actually. This leads us on to an interesting point, which is you could argue that Shevek's decision to leave his anarchist society and go to another planet is primarily the fault of one person. Mm-hmm. Now, the anarchist society on Anaris has some problems. It is far from perfect, but that's not what drives Shevek away. Shevik's primary problem is one of his colleagues at the Institute for Physics, a man named Saville, who essentially is trying to plagiarise credit for Shevik's work at best, and at worst trying to censor it out of existence. And aside from all the other problems that are happening on Aris, it is this that causes Shevik to leave. Given that that's the character's primary motivation, can we truly say that it was his friction with his own society that drove him away, or is Saville merely there to represent that fiction? I think to some extent it's the case that I, I, I never read it as, as particularly um, the clash with Savile. So, I mean, in terms of, I don't think it could be formulated in the sense that he saw it as a direct clash, individual against individual. I think he, the, the way it seemed to me was that he was concerned primarily with the fact that what he saw as a genuine good, the theory that he was trying to produce, had the or it was possible for that to be crushed. Now, I mean, to me, that's an expression of a kind of broader power relationship than it is with a kind of individual argument. Maybe also um, Sabul, so that's Shevek's um, well, superior at the physical in- at the Institute of Physics, or I'm not sure how it's called, but basically it's, a supi- it's his well mentor and superior for the research institution. But I think Sabul is kind of meant to be indicative of what seems to be going wrong on Anaris now. So you had Anaris being established like a little less than 200 years ago and lots of ideals and people fought through very hard times. But it seems, I mean, to me it seems like the problem that they are facing right now is is kind of a stagnation. 
So things get kind of things start to crystallize and you have you have administration but the administration is starting to become more powerful and starting to become yeah fossilized and kind of become um, less fluid and become less adaptable. And I think Sabul, who abuses who clearly abuses his power, is indicative of that. So he's he stands for all these problems in the society. Um, and the pro one of the problems is not just like the like the slowly re-establishing of authority on the Naros. The other problem is um, profiteering. So you start to see yourself more as an individual than as a part of a community, and you start to look at things for your own benefit. And so Bull is trying to basically plagiarize, um, or like pass ideas off as his own ideas, so plagiarize um, Shevek's ideas to gain personal benefit. So I think he's, he's, he's kind of a symbol of what's wrong. And I think, leading on from that, uh, I think Sabul is symptomatic of the problems of the system. Mm -hmm. But there's a point where it speaks about ideas being ignored. It's not just the acceptance of ideas, but the fact that had he come up with this theory and released it on Anaras, it would have gone nowhere. But he sort of goes about it haphazardly. But on Urus, when he does finally make it to the Terran embassy and goes to release this information, it doesn't go to one group of people. It goes to everyone. And I think that speaks truer to his original goals and Odonian values than perhaps many of his actions in the book even. I think, I think Shevik's definitely committed to truth in a way that... I, I, I think the problem that he sees in Sabul is Sabul's concern with achievement. And and it's interesting that the primary grounds for that, Sabul's sense of achievement, is against the Erasti scientist, the scientist on the other planet, whereas Shevek maintains his commitment to um, his commitment to the idea of truth. I, I think there's parts in the book where he refuses to acknowledge that truth could be possessed by anyone, rather than being a function of the world or, or, or the society. He, he writes a piece on physics about his theory of simultaneity and Sabal tells him to tone it down to be more personally palatable to the scientists he's just proved wrong. Um, and Shevek is completely in rejection of this because to Shevek, the truth is the truth. What's interesting about this, of course, is when he finally meets one of the scientists he proved wrong, the scientist in question is very pleased he apparently also was interested in truth, and the mediator between them, the man with the printing press and the radio, Sabal, was the only one who thought Shevek's uh, words needed to be changed. I mean, the, 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 the quite a strange thing seems to be that uh, Sabal seems, seems quite uh, keen on the idea that he wants to stand outside of the organisation of that society, but still believes that the people within it should only think certain things. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that's one of the one of the major questions that's raised by the um, by the novel is is whether society does or doesn't condition what we can think. I mean, almost by definition, Savile is within that society, but like likes to think that he stands outside of it in some respect. Um, and and it's it's quite clear, and it's been mentioned on several times that um, Le Guin was sort of taking account of of something called the Wolf Hypothesis, which argues that language conditions what we think when she was writing this novel. I mean, what, what do you think about that idea? I mean, are there several, are there, are there kind of areas in which that becomes 
obvious um, in, in, in the process of the novel. It's Orwellian in a sense, the concept of a construction of a language, the intentional construction, because you do have the usage of words like profiteer and egoizing. Uh, you see the sort of creation of the negatives in this language, but you don't see many examples of creation of positives in it. Of course, what's curious about this parallel is to Orwell, the creation of a language or the control of a language was there to oppress, whereas the Odonians create their own language to free themselves. But does their language then in turn end up oppressing them because they don't have the breadth of language to eventually describe what they want? I think the argument of the at least from the kind of Adonian anarchist side, would be that that's what they've agreed to have. And I don't particularly agree with that. I just think it's worth asking. Definitely. I mean, the, the, um, we, we, we talked earlier about some of the examples where one of the early novelties of reading the book is the language that it's written in and the language that the characters use with each other. So uh, Shevek's conversation with his daughter when he needs a handkerchief. The daughter says... Um, would you like this hang- handkerchief I use? As opposed to, would you like to use my handkerchief? What, one of the very early lines about this is when it's the first time an uh, Odonia meets an Arasi, and it's at the landing site for the spaceships, and the anarchist asks the capitalist, can you look after you? Which is an interesting way to structure the question. And I think that's very, that's the first thing you hear an Odonian say. I think, if I understood correctly, there are also very, very little curse words on an earth. And so, um, in the absence of that, it's, it's interesting. If they want to express that they're angry at something, they have a problem. I'm not, I'm actually, I wonder, does anyone know? Does anyone have an idea why what is this absence of curse words? Well, the, the quote I like about it is, it is hard to swear when sex is not dirty and blasphemy does not exist. Now, while Adonianism is moralistic, it's probably not religious. And ideally, Adonian society also doesn't attach any shame to sex, although we can talk about sex and gender later. And the implication would be that they've had to import their own swear words. They say things like damn and hell, and then they look at each other and say, what do these words mean? This suggests that they do have great difficulty swearing because swearing requires them to carry negative connotations. Although, interestingly, they often accuse people of profiteering when they're doing nothing of the sort, as if the idea of being a capitalist has become a generic insult even outside of the idea of economics. Yeah, I mean, the only swear words I can think of are egoizing and profiteering. So kind of, again, negative words that are, well, that mark that they're different from um, the people on Urus. So that's what the people on Urus do, and we use that as curse words. But at the same time, some of the negative concepts like hell um, that, you know, are, are concepts, important concepts and Urus, have no meaning on an Aris. So that's quite interesting. Well, I think that um, there's... One, one of the interesting things about that is it shows that actually the... Even after... I think they've been there for 200 years on Aris? 164. 164. Um, even after that period, they still haven't lost the need to have a kind of competitive ideology. I mean, that that's obviously does something... It does quite a lot to bind them together. You know, while 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 Shevik's being told not to egoize or, you know, so and so is a is a filthy profiteer. I think Tacko calls Sabal that at some point. Um, you know, and and I think there's interesting interesting dynamics in terms of whether this is purely kind of anti-Irasti 
um, construction or whether it's internal to the way they've constructed the language themselves. I mean, of course, we don't know much about that language because the book's in English. Um, but, I mean, anyone that's tried to learn other languages knows that or is more or less comfortable swearing in different languages, right? I mean, English is, for, well, in my limited experience, English is probably the most creative language to swear in, whereas Russian is probably the most visceral. One final point I'd like to make on language is one of the Urasi characters. When Shevet goes to Uras, he's put up in nice halls inside the university and he gets a butler. Now, the butler is very clearly from the Urasi lower classes. He's not someone who owns anything, is the way the novel places it. And while he's addressing upper-class characters, he speaks what's termed iotic, which is a very formal language. But when he's merely conversing on a personal level with Shevek, he switches to a different vernacular. Now, Ursula Le Guin's obviously an American author, and I can't help but think that the way she constructs the butler's speech is deliberately designed to remind us of the way that slaves were said to speak in various texts around the Civil War or the antebellum South. And I thought that was an interesting way to do it, which would have been very reminiscent to her initial American audience of the idea of a class who are owned. Um, so maybe not quite the last word on language. I have, <laughs> I have another point. Um, so coming off of the swear word of egoizing we encounter um, on Anaris, I'm wondering if um, Le Guin could have pushed it a bit further on, on the language level in terms of use of personal pronouns. So from what I understand, on Anaris, you still use personal pronouns and um, pronouns that indicate possession, basically. And I wonder if she could have pushed it a bit further on, on, on that front. So if you're talking about egoizing, a logical consequence would be to start getting rid of I, basically, right? And I wonder if that's maybe just an indication of this is quite an early development, so this is only uh, less than 200 years into the revolution. Um, and maybe a next stage for Anaris would be to actually get rid of those kind of things more and more and abandon personal pronouns in some way. I don't know how that would look like, but it would be an in interesting experiment I would like to see. Well, Anaris still uses he and she, so they still use gendered pronouns, but it's not made clear whether the anarchists have any distinction between sex and gender. Mm. Now, when one of Shevek's children is born, he does ask, what is it, and gets the response of girl. But that's clearly a physical assessment that the midwife has made of the child. It's not really made clear anywhere if they have a distinction between sex and gender. So what pronouns mean to the Odonians is not strictly clear, yeah. at least to me. Yeah. I think there's a couple of things where while the, the use of profiteer or egoizing is actually quite a technical term, right? It's, it, it's something you've put there to solve a particular problem in language. There's other slippages like the he-she thing which would in some ways naturally follow that aren't yet present in the book. And, and, and while, there's, um, while, while, while that's got you know, quite a lot of emotional content, other things seem to have been, rather than changed, rendered functional. So um, the, the attitude towards procreating or... Um, do they use the word, is it... They quite often ask each other, would you like to copulate? copulate yeah. Um, you know, those seem to have quite strict kind of biological functions rather than a kind of social judgment inherent in this. I mean, you, you read The Left Hand of Darkness, right? Yes. Uh, yeah, I mean, does that kind of follow or did she do similar things in that book? I know I addressed those questions. But... Well, partly. Uh, I think each book and of the series is really a world or sort of mini-universe unto itself. So I don't know if that's a fair comparison to make. 
Um, that being said, though, there are certain definitions, certain words she creates. I think it's important to remember, though, that language is evolving. And just as they speak of the revolution as continuing, the language itself continues to evolve and adapts to the society. So it's interesting to see that they do have so few what would term curse words. And it's also interesting to see that they haven't come up with more. And perhaps that this language is still in its process of evolving, perhaps understanding sex and gender are continuing to do so. Or maybe it's just functional and those things are just irrelevant as definitions of identity. When you speak on mothers and fathers, you have the mother, the father. There's that lack of possession there. But at the same time, you still have a gendered possession that hangs on. So it would be interesting to see a follow-up and say, a hundred years from that point of the book taking place, has the revolution continued? Has the revolution in language continued? Well, this raises the question of whether those things are societal or natural to humans. So at certain points, the book suggests that ideas such as ownership are inherent to humans. At one point, it calls it the natural aesthetic desire to own. And babies in the creche on Anaris are trained out of thinking that this is their patch of sunlight or whatever. And I wonder if the book does enough to distinguish between that which apparently is natural to a human and that which is created by society. Because I don't think it works particularly hard to make that distinction. And she speaks on that as well with the concept of fidelity and monogamy too. The idea that there are certain things that are natural to humans, although it seems like in some ways she doesn't fully explore it because she focuses on the societal limitations of maintaining a monogamous relationship when one partner can be sent off anywhere at any time, and that is the priority. So it is sort of interesting to see how she would construct that. Um, because there's some things in this that are really taken for granted in terms of interpersonal relationships. That's quite a, quite a strong thread throughout the book. I mean, when, when you get onto the ideas of uh, you know, some of the things that are articulated quite clearly, like freedom, uh, particularly in the speech at the end of the book, mm -hmm. there's obviously quite a clear idea there that freedom isn't necessarily um, getting away from uh, particular constraints, but the, the willingness to do that. And I think Sheva quite openly acknowledges in some cases um, the fact that, for instance, on Anares, they don't have anything. They live in a desert or, you know, in an in a, in a environment of extreme scarcity. But that doesn't necessarily mean they're not free because they chose to be that way. There's, there's another interesting observation on freedom in the book. It's very early on when Shevek, um goes to is on Urus and it's his very first observations on the planet. And it kind of plays on a distinction of freedom from and freedom to. So on Urus, um, at least um, the upper classes, um, Shevek observes, they have a freedom from want. Um, but it's also quite clear this is a negative freedom. Um, he observe, Shevek observes that freedom from want was an exact proportion to the lack of freedom of initiative. And later he says, in a way, the people in Uras, or at least the, the kind of upper classes, the kind of privileged people in Uras, um, they're free from anything, but they're not free to do anything. Whereas he, on Anaris, he had not been free from anything, the book says, only free to do anything. I think that's 
Yeah, I, I think he's very kind of recognizing of that, right? I mean, right, right at the beginning of the speech, which I, I honestly think is brilliant. I mean, it was completely inspiring the first time I read it 10 years ago. So um, he begins, um, it is our suffering that brings us together. It is not love. Love does not obey the mind and turns to hate when forced. And I think that that, and I don't know much about the kind of history of anarchist thought, but I think that's a very specific kind of anarchism because he's quite, the book maintains the recognition of the individual in a way that quite often when people talk about communal societies, they don't tend to and kind of assume that there's this kind of balance between um, between society and the individual, which society will inevitably kind of overtake and win in that, in that kind of tension. And I, I think Shevet acknowledges again that even when that tension, Anaris didn't get rid of that tension, but they had a chance to address it. Um, maybe that tension is actually integral to the story, but also I'm, I'm, I'm not familiar enough with anarchist theory or anarchism in any way to actually make that judgment. But in the book, at least, it's quite, it's quite, to me, it seems quite obvious that the tension between the individual and society is extremely important and is integral to the story. So, as we said before, right, there's this tension between Shevek as an individual and Shevek as a member of a society. And I think this, this tension is extremely important to bring society forward in, in his case. Because he has agency, he is able to, in the end, to contribute to society and contribute to its kind of well-being and further development. So I think that tension is actually really important. There's tension, but there's also balance. Uh, look at the custom of naming of Anaris. Mm -hmm. You have a, she writes the five and six letter names issued by the Central Registry computer, being unique to each living individual. Uh, took the place of numbers which the computer, uh, using society, must otherwise attach to its members. So there is, on some level, an acceptance of the individual and the value of the individual within a society like this. And I think to be otherwise would really be contrary to the base ideas of which the society is created under. Uh, that being said, though, the individual naming, just like the terms used for mother or father, um, are of significance because you have the names reused uh, throughout generations. There's only one at a time, but there was a Shebek before this. I think it's important to point out that if we're talking about the idea of individuality and Shevek's speech towards the end, that immediately before the speech, it talks very strongly in terms of unity. Um, it says, he, he Shevek, spoke their mind, their being, and their language, though he said no more than he had said out of his own isolation, out of the centre of his own being a long time ago. So while Shevek is an individual there, he is speaking with a voice that is of all of them. Um, I, I think that says a lot about the, the novel's approach to what it means to be an individual in a society where you're free, uh, wherein the people he's addressing are not free. I think, yeah, it's, it's really interesting because the, when, when we're talking these terms, we kind of have to adapt our idea of freedom a little bit. Mm -hmm. and, and there's a very clear idea of running through this, but it's, it's not liberal freedom. I mean, you might be able to get something out of liberal freedom that looks a bit like that. But I, I think there's, there's one line in particular... Um, the freedom, freedom for for the anaresti, anaresti, yeah, um, seems to be something you know that you, you a function of what you choose to do. 
and and if if people collectively make that choice, then it's still a free choice. Um, and what, one of the interesting lines I came across uh, when I was going through this again was, uh, he says, "I'm here because you see in me the promise, the promise that we made 200 years ago in this city uh, when they revolted. Uh, the promise kept. We have kept it on Anaras. I mean that that seems to draw quite a strong distinction between to me between a promise kept, keeping the dream, and a promise fulfilled." which are two very, very different things. Yes, I think it's really important to acknowledge that all the societies we see throughout this novel are, to an extent, failures. So Anaris is meant to be this anarchist utopia, and yet it has a bureaucracy, and people are unhappy. Um, Uras is meant to be this capitalist world, which works very well, but of course people are incredibly poor. Um, there's a country on Uras called Thu, which had some kind of communist revolution, but then fell to authoritarianism. And later on in the novel, we meet a Terran, who explains that on Earth, the ecology eventually collapsed. But of course, what makes the idea of Adonianism important is that Shevek's return to Anaras is predicated upon the continual revolution. The idea that this you have to fight to keep this promise going. And I, I also find it interesting that Shevek talks of his own world only in positive terms when he's on Uras. When he's on his, when he's on his home world, that's when all the negative things come out. And so he becomes an interesting symbol in that sense because the Urasi see none of the bad. Yeah, you mentioned the return, and I think the return to Anaris is also it's another example of, of the kind of freedom um, we might be talking about because the freedom of Anaris also includes the freedom to be a dissident. So towards the end of the book, he's asked, so what, what will happen when you come back to Anaris? Will they harm you? And he says, no, no, they will not harm me, but I'm a dissident now and there are consequences for that. However, he says, the choice to be a dissident, he says, that's my privilege as an Adonian. So it's quite interesting that you do not have to conform. You have the choice not to conform and in some way that will be accepted. Well, yeah, I mean, the book's, the, the book's quite interesting in that, yeah, it, it is quite circular, right? I mean, I, I, I really like the structure of it. Yeah. Um, I, I don't think it's the most complex attempt at a similar kind of structure. But a lot of people have said that Shevek's theory, which is one of, of kind of simultaneity and, and, and temporality, is, is something that was reflected in the structure of the book. Yeah, so I'm usually a huge fan of audiobooks, but if people out there are going to read or experience, terrible word, the dispossessed, get a physical copy of the book. So Shevek's idea of simultaneity is that all of time happens at the same time. And just because we move forward and possibly backwards through it doesn't stop the other parts of time existing. And in the novel, Shevek uses the metaphor of a book to explain this. And so when I'm reading chapter 8 and seeing what Shevek does there, the Shevek of chapter 1 and the Shevek of chapter 12 already exist. They don't cease to exist because I'm not currently reading that chapter. And so not only does the book contain a metaphor about a book, the book itself is a metaphor for Shevek's idea of how physics works, which is kind of meta, but I also think it's really cool, so... I, I, I absolutely agree. I mean, the interesting thing would be, and, and, and this in some respects goes back to one of the things we talked about last time. I mean, does the plot hold the book back in that sense? I mean, presumably what you're talking about is whether you could read any chapter at any time and be able to draw your own links between them based on that, that temporal sequence. I think it's important that... So Shevek gradually discovers what Uras is really like. But from the point of view of the audience... We're discovering both planets gradually. So our opening knowledge of 
Benares and Uras are of anarchism and opulence respectively. And as the book goes on, the audience gains an idea that both are in some ways flawed. Now, even though Shevek doesn't follow that same chronology, it's important that the audience does. Yeah, the, I think I think there's another thing. So we, we started this conversation, uh, this part of the conversation, right, with saying he returns to Anaris. So there's this idea of return, this idea of circle. Um, and I think that's quite important because Adonianism, so the kind of the kind of ideology they follow in Anaris, the symbol for Adonianism is a circle, and that's, for example, printed on all the books they officially print. Um, so I think again it plays on several levels. So the the ideology on Anaris is represented by a circle. He leaves his planet, he comes back. It's again a kind of circular thing. And then part of the physics he works on, he works on a general temporal theory, tries to combine um, simultaneity and sequency. And simultaneity, again, in the book, where he, and there's a passage where he explains that, and one of the metaphors is a book, and the other metaphor is, again, the circle. So I, re I, really, li I really like those kind of visual images, and I think, again, it plays on, on so many levels on the ideology, the form that the book takes itself, the story that Shadow experiences, and, and the theory he works on eventually. I think it definitely reflects itself in Shabak as a character. I mean, there's definitely points of the book. I mean, you've got quite a lot of kind of anecdotal stories quite early on about when he's a child that he definitely reflects on um, later in the book when, when he's being kind of under house arrest on the campus. He says, I'm, am I a prisoner? Um, and, and the category prisoner is something that's incredibly important earlier in the book when, when they're playing some child's game. And I, I think the book definitely shows Shabak as... A whole person reflected in in the book in, in in kind of its alternating chapters in a way that isn't necessarily a linear person these things don't memory his memory of things isn't linear he's not remembering his childhood you know the, it, it skips back and forth and, and and so and so on and and and, and that really kind of raises a question I, to kind of finish up I, I found when when I read this book, and, and to me it's, it's it's the way I read it kind of spontaneously when I'm not preparing for a podcast, right? Um, for me, one of the big questions is is how a society reflects itself in the people it produces, um, and 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 I think that it does some really interesting things. There's there's not many books that pay quite as much detail to how a given society has to reproduce itself. Um, as, as there is in The Dispossessed. I, I think there's, while we get a lot of this kind of normative content out of it, and that the things that we discuss in terms of freedom and everything else, that all comes as a function of the things that particularly Anaris has to do, or Anaristic society has to do in order to reproduce itself. Uh, and, and do you think that has, the first time I read it, I, I, and I initially thought that had quite a dehumanizing effect on the characters they became kind of cogs in the machine um, that Shevek was just kind of genius enough to get out of. But having finished it again, what, the third or fourth time I read it, um, I'm, I'm not entirely sure that's the case. Now, I mean, when, we're, uh, when, when, when the book was being written, finished up, and, uh, and, and Le Guin was looking for a title, uh, I mean, The Dispossessed was always the title, but... Um, one of the one of the subtitles that was later adopted by her as the official subtitle uh, was an ambi uh, an ambiguous utopia. Do you think that's a kind of 
fair classification for what the book's trying to do. I, I think that's very important to Anaris in that if we think about how we imagine utopia and sci-fi more generally, it's people living lives of opulence or relaxation. Now, if we are to view it as a utopian society, Anaris has none of these things. They're dirt poor, they have very little, they work extremely hard, they suffer from a famine, and yet they have something which they view as utopian, which they don't get and arguably couldn't get on any other planet. In that respect, I think Anaris is utopian, or is meant to be. And on that same note, it's that they endure, that they continue to survive and continue to exist. And it's sort of the cyclical pattern because it, I think, mentions that there were troubles and struggles and famine before this, that it's sort of the continuing pattern of rising again and continuing on as a society and speaking to the nature of uh, the value of mutual aid and the community um, as the social structure that is most important for that society to endure. Mm. Well, one of the things that also needs to be mentioned in this regard is they live on an hours, they live under super harsh conditions. So they're constantly struggling for survival to the extent that they face famine, which basically could mean people dying, and people do die from that. So they're under this constant threat from, from their own environment. And the question I would have, what, what would the society look like if they weren't in those harsh conditions? Would it work in similar terms? Would the community and the mutual support be similar if they had more, if they lived in abundance? I think it's quite fundamental to the book, actually. I mean, it, it depends on how you're defining utopia in this sense. I mean, spent quite a lot of time reading kind of 19th century, 18th century utopians, and, and, and they come up with some great stuff, like machines to turn the sea into lemonade. And one of my favourites was the argument that Britain had a really long coastline, and it made it entirely possible for everyone to live by the sea. And this was utopia. But I, I think if you take a kind of, well, at least a slightly more technical definition, the idea that a society can embody an idea, then that actually means that the material circumstances that the society is going through at any given point has got little to do with whether it's a utopia or not. It's whether the society characterises that ideal. Now, for, for them, they characterise that ideal even when they're struggling. I think it does raise the question of whether the struggle is what allows them to keep that ideal going in the first place. Absolutely. When you uh, hear the Terran uh, diplomat envoy speak, uh, referring to Urus as a paradise in her eyes. And I think that speaks to the sort of variety of life as well, that you find the variety of plant, animal life, but also the variety of human structures of socialization, human structures of government that you find on that planet as well. In right. the universe. In the universe. Yeah. Well, there we go. There's aliens too. There's only, what is it, nine known planets in the book? I think there's only nine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we have to kind of be finishing up there. I mean, any, any final words? Um, actually, I think it's worth going back to very briefly the issue of gender and how she does set up this thought experiment because it's worth noting that at sometimes she's very blunt about how she goes about it. With Urus, the depictions of women as being subservient to men or uh, less powerful, less uh, control over their lives or access. 
those things are rather blunt objects to illustrate certain points about the equality on Inaris. And it's worth acknowledging, yet at the same time, she's very subtle in how she characterizes uh, in the interpersonal relationships on Inaris, and going back to that point. Because there's a way in which sexuality and gender and really personal relationships, uh, polyamory, uh, are characterized in this just as is subtle way, the way in which the many would wish to see such relationships characterized in our own world. It's, it just is. I think one of the good things about it is that she doesn't... There's two ways of making that argument, right? One is to write a book that takes great issue and a painstaking length goes to argue that a certain state of affairs should pertain, right? You know, the, a book that has its plot and every and its setting dedicated to proving that um, polyamory is, is the way to do things or, or, or homosexuality or, or, or cohabitation or any of these concepts should be the case. The other thing is just to portray a really convincing society in which it exists and works. And I think she definitely takes that second approach in this one. Yeah. And it just doesn't, it doesn't just exist. It exists in a way that's variety. You have the monogamy, you have the polyamory, and while certain societal structures are more, not anti-monogamy, but make it more difficult, it's still something that is accepted. There's less of a struggle over it. I, I think one of the important things to bring up then is, while Shevik is on the rest, there is a chapter in which he goes to a party, gets drunk, and then attempts to rape one of the female characters. Fails. Uh, and then he goes back into the party and, overcome with alcohol and food, throws up everywhere. Now, the book is certainly seeming to imply that this patriarchal, possessive idea of what male sexuality should be only happens to Shevek because he's living in this capitalist, consumerist society. And I was wondering what other people think about that. Is it fair to say that this idea of possession of a woman's body would be absent from a society like the Odonian one? I think this comes up quite a lot in kind of Marxist thinking and, and various other things, you know, whether sexual oppression would exist after the revolution and all, all, of, all of that kind of stuff. I mean, it's a, it's a huge um, area of tension in left-wing thinking. One of, the, one of the things that seems to come up when he's arriving at Eurus is prior to that scene, he also has a woman kind of proposition him quite heavily in scenes where he fundamentally doesn't understand the ways in which she is supposed to be beautiful, whether it's her breasts or her beautifully shaven head or, you know, any, any of these things. And it seems, and I was never quite sure in terms of the time span of the book, because it seems that seems, that seems to be the beginning of him adopting to an entirely new set of categories with which he's completely unfamiliar. And in many cases, it elicits a fairly kind of childlike response or what we would consider as a childlike response. Now, the worry is, I mean, if, if, if it's then the next day that he then attempts to rape a woman, I mean, that's pretty disturbing. Mm. That's pretty heavy um, and, and quite a hard-hitting way to put it. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm really not sure about... I mean, that's the way I see it. I think I, I agree, but on the premise that he is adopting and getting used to Eurasty values over some period rather than the next day. I think it's certainly implied that's very much part of Eurasty in that 
the very first encounter we see with a person from Marasi, there's this line where he has a gun. There are no guns on Mars. And it says, he, potted, he patted the thing he wore on his belt, a metal object like a deformed penis, and looked patronisingly at the unarmed woman. She gave the phallic object, which she knew was a weapon, a cold glance. Now, that's our first encounter with one of these aliens from the proprietarian society, and there's explicit symbolism there. So I think Ursula Le Guin's making this explicit to their society. I would actually disagree with that, because Takfer says uh, earlier on um, in the book, she calls a woman a body profiteer, referring to sexuality as a weapon in a power struggle with men. And I would say that this is something that's not entirely exclusive to Urus. It doesn't ex- excuse behavior by any means, but it does speak to something in human sexual relations that is portrayed in the book, showing that there are desires to possess or possess other people. And I think she speaks about it in a lesser extent on the concept of fidelity, but I think that those that contrast is there primarily to make a point and say that there's contrast, but not as much as we think. Do you think the the fact that she uses what we've been calling an expletive, right, a profiteer, it, do you think that denotes that even for Tabitha, ta- I mean, to some extent the way she sees those things happening is somehow at the edge of society, though? It's kind of outside of the normal conduct of Erasti culture. I would actually say that it's more common because there's multiple instances within the um, shared residences of sort of similar behavior or that type of behavior Um, or something along those lines, not just the specific behavior she refers to as body profiteer, but also the behaviors of wanting to possess someone's room, even that sort of behavior. There's a comment where Takfer and Shebek live next door to this woman, and it's commented that there's a line of men she sees on different nights. And it's certainly couched in negative terms, as opposed to terms of freedom of sexuality. Absolutely. And I think going back to the whole point of this book, speaking on it overall, is the idea that she is discussing at its very core human nature and human nature in these various thought experiments of different societies. And I think that's what she tries to do very much with the whole Hainish Cycle series, really, is question human nature and how it would adapt or work in different environments, and is it fluid or not. Okay, we have to finish there, but uh, thanks very much to uh, to everyone for taking part. Um, next time we'll be, uh, we'll be discussing Ender's Game by uh, Orson Scott Card. Uh, thanks very much for listening. <laughs>